The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Have you heard of the Facebook? Have you heard of the Facebook? How many people got the Facebook? You got, you're, on, you're on Facebook. How many people are pretty happy you're not on Facebook? <laughs> Correct. Um, so I was reading this week about Facebook. They have this little staff project uh, that they do, and they're up in kind of like the office of every uh, Facebook office around the world. They have this artwork up, and they're looking for an answer to the question. Uh, this one actually is on the wall There's one ugly dog, Um, but you can see the question that they have up in their offices. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? It's meant to inspire people to take risks, to not worry about failing, but to take risk and achieve more. So what they have is they have, they have a website, of course, that they set up that has these responses from people, I don't know if it's just people on their staff or people from around the world, but a lot of different responses. I read through a bunch of these. There's hundreds, maybe thousands there. Uh, but here's, here's some that I would find less inspiring. Can I just put it that way? Um, one person said, scream loud in public. I'm thinking you could aspire to more uh, than just that. Um, sec- here's another one. Give Justin Bieber a chance. Why? (laughs) It's more fun not to. Um, Or this one, literally, grab the bull by the horns. No. These ones are more inspiring, though. I I like these ones. Travel alone for a whole year. Uh, How many people would say, that might be appealing to me. I might like to do that. I want to be risky. Uh, How about... um, Give an honest answer. Now, that's somebody who gave some thought to this. Or, or this one, and I think this one's filled with emotion. Emotion. Uh, move back to my country. And I want to hear the story behind that one. What would you do if you weren't afraid? I mean, that's a neat little project. It encourages people, again, to take risks and not be afraid to fail. I get it. I appreciate it. I think we as Christ followers, because we are at least supposed to come from a very different mindset, that our value system is based on what we understand about God's kingdom and and not the kingdom of this world, not the uh, believe in yourself kind of mantra. Because of who we are in Christ, I think we ought to answer that question differently. And... We ought to be far more willing to actually do it, to take the risk, to not be afraid, to do the things that God might ask us to do, to pursue the dreams that are on track with his will and his mission. We flat out, as the followers of Jesus Christ, should not be afraid to reach out, to dream, to pursue, to go after. We should have faith 
in Christ to provide us all that we need to make it happen. We're talking about ditching the fear and it's faith in Christ that pushes out the fear. In today's narrative, Luke chapter 8, Jesus encounters two people who had a dream, if you will, had a big thing going on in their life. They could easily answer the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? They had that happening right in their life. It wasn't complicated for them. Something that needed to be done. Both of them had some fear in moving toward it. And Jesus said in the hearing of both of them and others who were standing by, do not fear, only believe. So let's look at the account, see how Jesus would have all of us today. Uh, The benefit of the scriptures is for us. um, How Jesus would have all of us today lose the fear and live by faith. Are you up for that? Lose the fear and live by faith. This is Luke 8, 40 through to the end of the chapter. Two stories really here, one embedded in the other. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. He's just returned from that Gentile area, just had the casting out of the demons from the pigs. You remember that from a couple Sundays ago? Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Lose the fear and live by faith. We're going to arrange this a little bit more topically and move around from uh, different sections Uh, Let's start with what we see about fear. Contrast these two things. Fear, 
in these encounters, we notice three things. First of all, that uh, fear gives up. Fear has no uh, tenacity, no ability to stick with it. In verse 49, Jairus had come with his desperate need. Jesus had started out with him, and as he's kind of moving towards the man's house to heal his daughter, this other woman comes along, we see, and she has this bleeding issue. Twelve years she's had this, and she interrupts the whole journey to this man's house to heal his daughter. Meanwhile, a messenger comes in the gap of time that it took to deal with this woman to have her healed to find out who did it to have the conversation with her a messenger comes from the house and says you see it in verse 49 your daughter's dead now that's the fact that's what the messenger was obligated to bring bring the fact the girl is dead but like so many Tell me this isn't true. Like so many messengers we have in our lives, uh, they want to move beyond the facts to give their opinion about things. Anybody here have people in your life they just love giving you their opinion? Don't raise your hand. It might be close to you. There's just people, they just love to tell you what they think about something. Not just the fact of it, but here's what I think about it. So the messenger says, your daughter is dead. He offers his opinion about what should happen next, which actually turns out to be pretty bad counsel that goes beyond the fact of it. Do not trouble, notice it there, do not trouble the teacher anymore. Oh, really? And your opinion is based on what? I mean, how about we get to this place where Jesus decides whether or not he can help. In other words, all opinions are bogus unless they stand the scrutiny of what God's word says. And so uh, all these uh, people in our lives who would give us opinions, um, I'm happy to hear your counsel. I'm happy to hear what you have to say. If you can ground it in God's word. If you can show me that the Lord would say that. Too many unqualified people offering unhelpful advice that results in poor decisions and therefore more fear. This messenger had no faith, only fear. It resulted in quickly giving up and packing it in. And it's so easy to fall into that. All around us, we have people who are naysayers and, and skeptics and and, and we fall victim to them and stop believing what God said. His promises are sure. We can't give in to fear in that way. The followers of Jesus Christ are marked. They're marked by tenacity. They're marked by endurance. It is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. The followers of Christ do not give up ever. Only fear tells us to give up, uh, not faith. And then how about this? There's probably enough of a sermon already there. Amen? I got more though. A fear also despairs over. 
Uh, Jesus quickly moves to challenge uh, the messenger. He turns to Jairus and he says to him, verse 50, you should have this underlined, do not fear, only believe. And he lays the promise out for him. And she will be well. That word well means she'll be saved or she'll be healed. They continued on their way. And you get the sense that no matter what the messenger said, uh, because Jesus, he's God, he understands all of this. He has the full power of God. He has the full wisdom of God. He has the full knowledge of God, all of this. Jesus, you would agree with me, is not despairing in the least. He's not believed the messenger or at least not been discouraged by him. And when they got there, everybody's gripped with this loss, this little girl and their despair over death itself. And yet Jesus just keeps on with his plan. Take a look at verses 51 and 52. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James. That's the inner three. So Jesus had the group of disciples. He had the 12 apostles. He had the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who often got to do kind of extra things with them as he was developing them to be leaders in the future church. And then, of course, the father and mother of the child and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. Now, when he says do not weep here, he's not saying it in the way that we might say the same thing to someone who's grieving. In fact, we have full permission when someone in our lives passes away, we have a full permission to grieve. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 makes it uh, very clear that uh, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. But um, we might go up to someone and kind of encourage them and in the midst of their grief. And we might want to be delivering the hope. But we understand from our perspective that when we're delivering that hope, we're delivering a future hope. We're letting them know that their loved one, if they were a follower of Christ, is with the Lord. And we might be giving them the hope that God's strength and his care and his comfort will be their portion as they await the day when they'll be in eternity as well. And we do this. We speak this kind of hope to one another. But that is not what's happening here. Jesus isn't delivering some future promise about what's going to happen when. He's telling them something's going to happen now. And you ought not to despair or be in fear. Um, Jesus is speaking and acting in a way that drives away despair and brings hope to them, in fact. But the people are fearful because all they see is death. Honestly, one of the most uh, discouraging things for a pastor to do is a funeral, but not for the reason that you might think. Obviously, it's sad when you're laying someone to rest and you're working a family through their grief. That's, That's not even the worst part of it. The worst part of it is that as pastors, we get up there and the family very often will say to us, we want you to deliver the gospel. Many of our friends and family will be here who do not know the Lord. And I need you to tell them the gospel. And you would think that in a time like this, people would be so desperate and ready to hear the gospel because they're facing death again. And everyone of us knows, everyone in this room knows the clock is ticking. Nod your head if you realize the clock is ticking. Your clock is ticking. But you see, that's the problem. A lot of us live in denial of that. 
And while I believe, this is the sad part about the funeral for, for pastors who preach the gospel, is that you would think people would be ready to respond. The saddest part is watching them walk out the door. They just flip the blinders down and they, 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 they put the mute button on and they walk away. Not impacted at all. By the fact that yet another human being was laid to rest. And it isn't going to be too many more years before it's them. If people are being super honest, they'll acknowledge that they fear death and the unknown that lies beyond it. But few do. Mostly people cover it up and deny it. But despair is there. It's the foundation of fear. And if that's you today, you ought to acknowledge it. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, at the very core of who you are, you know that any kind of hope you've tried to build in your life that's not Jesus' hope is useless to you. And you ought to turn your life over to him. Fear gives up. Fear despairs over. And fear laughs at. Fear laughs at what it doesn't understand. Fear laughs at what doesn't fit the nice, neat little rationalistic categories that human beings like to put things into. We want to understand everything. And when Jesus says that the little girl is not dead but sleeping, verse 53 says, they laughed at him, look at this next word, knowing knowing that she was dead. I don't want to be morbid. I don't want to be... I've seen dead people. I mean, I've, I've seen people that have just died. And you know. You don't deny it. You know. You can't mistake it. These people knew... Even though Jesus is using the word sleeping, he's trying to get them to understand that for Jesus, for Jesus, death is not a permanent situation. Uh, For us it is, in the sense that we can't reverse it, but he can. And so he uses this word that's often used through the New Testament to refer to death. He says she's sleeping. He's still referring to death. There's no doubt she's dead. The people were absolutely certain about it. Now, we've set up this whole contrast between fear and faith because Jesus set it up. He said, do not fear, only believe. That the opposite of faith is fear. But it's the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith only when you actually want to believe. I want to believe Jesus. I I want to trust him. I want to have a confidence in him. I want to do the things that he has laid out for me to do, but I'm a little bit fearful of it. Fear is the opposite of faith when you want to believe. But listen now, certainty is the opposite of faith when you don't want to believe. I'm so sure of myself. I'm so sure of the facts. I've got enough strength in me. I've got this thing. I don't need God. Certainty is the opposite of fear, of faith, when you don't want to believe. 
Certainty intentionally pushes God out of the picture. Belief, trust, faith, not required. And that's exactly what's going on here with the people laughing at him. They were so certain that nothing could be done. They had no faith whatsoever. But do we not believe, Mark's gospel, three times Jesus says, with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. Don't ever laugh at God. Don't don't ever mock the thing that he wants to do in your life. Don't ever scorn the great things that he wants to accomplish in you, through you, and in the church. Don't ever belittle his plan. Don't ever make light of the salvation that he wants to bring into others' lives. It's fear, not faith, that makes us trivialize the awesome things that he wants to accomplish in the lives of individuals and in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm so intent on making sure that these messages are so personal for all of you that sometimes I miss the opportunity to actually say that there are some things that we need to think about corporately as the church. And I have to tell you that I am tempted at times to mock God to laugh at God when I think about some of the great challenges that are in front of us as a church. I can't even tell you how unusual it is to be a church of 14 years and not to own land or have a building of our own from which we can launch more churches and do more ministry. Not that I'm ungrateful for what we have, not in the least But we are in a very unusual circumstance to be a church of the age and size that we are and not own something. And yet I look at the challenge that's in front of us. And I seem to be, I'm I'm sharing with you my own heart and how I lack faith in this. But at times I seem to be in the place where I'm just going, the size of our congregation and the size of building that we'll need and the cost of land in the city of Barrie. And the demographic of our church and the millions of dollars that will be required, I am so certain that that is not possible. I'm sharing my heart with you. I'm so certain at times that that is not possible. And I find myself being like these people who are laughing in the face of Jesus, who say, the girl's just asleep. With God, all things are possible. And the only thing that keeps me and maybe some of you from believing that God could have land or a facility for us in the future, the only thing keeping us from that is what? It's just fear. It's fear. And we need to lose the fear and live by faith, don't you think? And and, and it's one thing, by the way, it's one thing to say that corporately in a big group, but understand that the fear will come crashing in when the elders come to you and say, now it's time to pledge. And you have to take that to your personal budget and you have to live by faith and figure out how you're going to make it happen.
All right, are we done with fear? All in favor of, of being done with fear? All in favor? All right. Uh, instead, let's have faith, all right? Faith, uh, first of all, looks for. Uh, when he first got on the scene in verse 40, all the way back to the beginning, then the crowd, notice the crowd uh, welcomed him. The text says that they were waiting for him. There's an anticipation, an eagerness for him to get back there. And we're not told exactly why the crowd is so uh, fired up and enthusiastic, but we can speculate because Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker, he was doing awesome things. And as a teacher, he was saying some things that was so far beyond the kind of things that they were hearing from their own religious leaders. He was such a purveyor of hope and love and light to people that they wanted more of that. And, um, I would just say this about our faith that, um, when you and I have, a, have faith, when we have trust in Jesus Christ in this way, uh, then we will always have a deeper desire for more. I would say that if you're here this morning grudgingly, that you haven't gotten this yet. I would say that if you woke up this morning or even yesterday were thinking about being here, I, if you had like the I can't wait to be there thing inside of you, if you don't have it in your mind that this is the best part of your week, I don't think you fully got this yet. We should have a deep desire for more. We should have an ongoing longing to hear his word. We should want so much to be with God's people, to have done what we just did, to sing together and lift high the name of Jesus Christ. We should want that. To experience his power in our lives, to hear the story of God at work. In people's lives, honestly, we should just be the kind of people who can't get enough. I can't get enough. I said to someone before the service last week, we were worshiping at a different Harvest Bible Chapel. I won't tell you which one, though if you look at my social media, you'd be able to figure it out. Um, so it's not a big secret. And I love that church. It was Harvest Muskoka. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> love that church. Love Kai. Love the whole fact. But I said, to, I said to someone before this, I said, either every other Harvest Bible Chapel sucks or I just love my church so much. And it's not that they don't. It's just a great place to be. And Cheryl and I, we go on vacation. We visit other churches. I speak out a little bit. And we, look, we just can't wait to get back here because of what God's doing here in the lives of God's people. And we should have that faith uh, looks for. And um, faith also acts upon Jairus, he comes to Jesus and he, he comes so desperate. Faith is such an active thing. And Jairus shows us and this woman, they both show us active faith. I mean, so desperate, he comes, notice verse 41, uh, falling at Jesus' feet, implored him. Now imagine you have something going on in your life that's so desperate. It's such a great need for you. That you're willing to physically throw yourself down on the ground in front of the pre person you're talking to and, and implore them, beg them. You're begging for the thing you need. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of such desperation that you were willing to show a, such humility. But that's this man. Verse 42 tells us just how desperate he is. We find out his daughter is dying. For Jairus, this is not only his daughter, but it's his, um, what does it say? It's his only daughter. Now, dads, dads of daughters know how special this relationship is, correct? 
Dads of daughters, raise your hand. Dads of daughters. We know how special that relationship is. And then the dads of only daughters know this in spades. We know this better uh, than anyone else. I personally only have one daughter. And so I have a very special relationship with my daughter. It's not that I don't love my boys. I love my boys completely, just in a different way. And because I love my one and only daughter so much, that's why... (laughs) What? That's why the boy who comes from my daughter's hand is going to have to work for it. I only got one. And I got to get it right. This is where you say amen. (laughs) Well, that little bit of fun aside, at least I thought it was fun. But it is a special relationship. All kidding aside. Jairus is broken. It's only daughters dying. I have a daughter, so I, in one respect, don't have any trouble at all putting myself in this situation. I've walked through families with their own hurt. Some of us are even closer to it than that and you don't have to imagine because you went through it yourself. This is a painful, desperate moment for him. And if you would take just one thing away from today's message, I would have it be this. That when you come to God, when you're seeking to build your faith, when you're asking him, for the breakthrough in your life. That you would come to the end of yourself in coming. That you would be, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit. That you would be humble before the Lord because that's actually the desperation that we bring. There's no other place I can go. There's no other avenue for me to take. My strength is at its end. When we're in that place, that's actually the key to the lock on the door that we need God to open. It's not opening any other way, but that we come desperate, having no other options. God, you are all I have. That's how we act in faith. This definition has been around a long time. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel. Knowing God promises a good result. We believe the word of God. We cherish his promises. And we act on it. We act on what he said in his word. Jairus isn't the only one modeling it. 
On his way to heal the girl, of course, verses 42 and 43, this woman who has this desperate situation of her own interrupts him. She has this particularly debilitating condition that would have restricted her movements in a significant way. Scriptures say that it's in verse 43, it's a discharge of blood. It's been happening for a dozen years. She was now impoverished, probably because it was difficult for her to make a living in the first place. And secondly, because everything that she made, she was giving to doctors to try and find some healing. The end of verse 43 says she couldn't be healed by anyone. It's an awful situation for her. The extra challenge is that the the bleeding would have made her ceremonially unclean, religiously unclean. And if anyone were to be around her and if she were to touch anyone, it would make them ceremonially unclean. And so anyone who was wanting to live a pure and holy life before the Lord and, and to be able to worship him unhindered according to the law, it meant that they couldn't be around her. No one to hold hands with, no one to hug, no one to embrace, no hands on the shoulder, no, no physical attention or connection at all. And I, I think about the loneliness. She's, she's poor. She's impoverished. She's socially ostracized. She's no doubt lonely. And she has this physical ailment that would have been so draining physically and emotionally on her constantly. Verse 44, she does the only thing she knows she can do. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. She acted. She acted on her faith as ridiculous as it sounds to do something like this. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She acted in faith, not fear. Faith acts upon and then see that faith tells about. I mean, faith isn't something that we hide, though she tries. Verses 45 and 46, Jesus actually calls her out. He he, he wants her to self-identify. As soon as it happened, as soon as she touched him, as soon as she was healed, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, He's looking over a crowd now. This crowd had met him as he came up on the shore. They're going into this town. It's it's a crush. Uh, I've I've had the privilege of visiting Israel. And and in the place, these small villages, some others who have gone on this trip, barely this wide, the, the width of this aisle would have been what the streets were like. And so a crowd pressing in. It's like going down to the ACC to see a game and everybody's waiting to get in and they open the doors and it's just a crush going through. And in the midst of that, lots of people, and this is, this is where Peter's coming from, lots of people are pressing in and around Jesus and touching him. 
But he senses that something's different here. So Jesus wants her to self-identify, to come forward on her own. This is a test of her faith to see if she's willing to go public. As all who have faith in Jesus Christ need to do. We go public and she just needs to confess. She just needs to have the conversation with Jesus. We go public through baptism. There's an orientation next week. Because some of you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you have not been baptized yet as a testimony to that. That's one of the first ways that you go public is is you get wet. You let everybody know. You identify with Jesus Christ. If you haven't been baptized, then you haven't gone public. You haven't told people about your faith yet. Not in the way the Bible prescribes for you to do that. I don't care what excuse you have for not doing it. The Bible seems pretty plain about it. We also go public at telling our story, telling other people about the transformation that's happened in our lives. This is why it's so phenomenal when someone who's in their adult years uh, comes to faith in Christ because generally speaking then they still have, they have all these friends who don't know Jesus and a transformation happens that's so radical that they then have to start explaining themselves to others and the thing that you want to say is, um, well, it's Jesus Christ has changed my life and I... Why don't you come and see? And so both the telling of the story and then the culture of invitation we're trying to have here where we're telling people, just come and see what God is doing in my church. And I love that that's happening on a regular basis here. A baptism, telling our story, inviting people to come and see. Godly living is one way that we tell people about our faith. And increasingly in this society, when you're actually living for Jesus and taking a certain moral stand on things where you're, the holiness of how you're seeking to live for the Lord, not that you're exalting any of that, but just increasingly when you're making decisions to live in a certain way for Jesus, that's being noticed in our society because it seems to be so radical. The way we serve others with unconditional love, all of that is, is the way that we tell others about our faith Verse 47, she doesn't hesitate now, second time around, to identify herself because for her, there's no longer any shame. The shame was having this bleeding condition. The shame was that she was socially ostracized. But she doesn't have any shame anymore. Now she was free. And and it says she came trembling. And you have to believe at this point because she's just experienced the awesome power of God. That doesn't happen by accident. That happens because God willed it. There's nothing about this story that took God or Jesus by surprise. Amen? He's not trying to... Listen, Jesus isn't trying to figure out what's going on. He's not doing an investigation. He's trying to get her to confess He already knows what went on and he's looking in the crowd knowing exactly who it is who touched him. You believe that? So he's pressing now to have her confess. The trembling is that she's in awe. She's in this moment actually worshiping this God who just did something unbelievable for her. Why would she not own that? Why would not any of us own that? That he saved us, that we were headed for hell, a Christless eternity, separated from God forever, uh, completely severed from the grace of God. 
he saved us. And he forgave our sins. And he removed all the fear, guilt, and shame. Why would we ever deny that? Why would we ever fail to confess that to whomever would listen? It tells about faith looks for, acts upon, tells about, and rests in. Still with me? Still there? Do you like the way I hit an eight-point message in two points? Eight just seemed like too much. But two we could handle, right? All right. See that faith rests in. The encounter with this a woman concludes in verse 48 with the acknowledgement that her faith had made her well. Her faith... See, she lost the fear and she lived by faith and that's what had made her well. And her rest was based on not, not on anything she had done but what, on Jesus, what Jesus had done. She, she had the perspective correct. This wasn't her doing. It wasn't, we can get so caught up in the little things that happen. Okay, it's not about, it wasn't about touching the garment. It was about an act of faith to believe something could happen. It's not about pieces of cloth or candles or certain prayers. It's not about that kind of thing. It's not about icons. It's not about locations. It's not about sacred places. It's it's about faith. It's always about our faith. And it wasn't anything she had done, what Jesus had done. And Jesus, notice here, he calls her, he calls her daughter. She's trembling before him at this point. And he calls her daughter. Now we've already seen the contrast between the two stories. You have a dad and daughter. You have a dad who's so desperate for the healing of his daughter, demonstrating his deep, deep love for her. And now Jesus in the other part of the story is calling this woman daughter. I'm telling you, when it's working right in the dad-daughter relationship, daughters are not afraid when they're with their daddy. There's no fear as long as daddy's there. And Jesus says to this woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. In that one word, he expresses love and affection and protection. In that one word, he firmly establishes her identity as a child of God. He declares God to be her father. And so she need not fear anything. And in essence, in this case, as is the case with every one of these physical healings and these raisings from the dead that we see, it's never about that. It's always about the spiritual healing that's taking place. When Jesus says your faith has made you well, this word well, again, we've looked at it already. It means both healing and salvation. It's, it's healing and saved. With the latter being Jesus' principal concern every time. That we would be saved. And though she fell before him in fear. He reassured her that her act of faith. Had resulted in her healing. Which resulted in peace in her life. 
He'd done this before. It was a common practice, a common greeting. He dismissed her with a shalom, go in peace. And she did. The turmoil, the anxiety that gripped her and grips us because of external circumstances, it's gone. It's gone in Jesus. The need that we have for healing in all aspects of our life, all the outward things that are happening must surely give way to the peace that we want to have internally in the midst of those struggles. God, give us peace in our spirit. Help us to have more faith in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why he went to the cross, that he could be our peace and reconcile us to the Father, no matter our circumstances. Faith rests in and faith finally amazes over. Jesus raises the girl from the dead, verses 54 and 55, taking her by the hand, he called out saying, child, arise. Her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat because being dead makes people hungry. There's no speculation here. People like to do this. There's no speculation here about where she was when she was dead. But people write books and, mo- and have movies about all of this, and it's all... Um, my one-word commentary on this is nonsense. Every movie about this gets two thumbs down, zero stars. Okay? Not worth your time. Don't buy the books. Even if they're just a dollar at Goodwill, don't buy the books. Uh, not worth it. It's all just speculative We shouldn't be speculating on this. The point of her being brought to life, uh, back to life, is not to give us details about death, but to tell us more about Jesus. What does this say about Jesus? I think we would do well to take the advice of the angels who are at the tomb, at the resurrection of Christ, and the women are going to the tomb and they're going to prepare the body because now the Passover is done and they go and he's not there. They're kind of speculating and wondering where he is and what has happened. Remember what the angel said? Why do you seek the living among the so much fixation on the dead part, and yet I have more fixation on the living part. You're here. What does this all say about God? How is this going to change your life now? Be amazed at what Jesus has done, what he did, and not where the girl's spirit was in in the interim. Her parents weren't thinking about it. I wonder where she was. Not at all. Parents were amazed at what they saw right in front of him, because she, right in front of them, because she had come back from the dead, and their simple and yet imperfect faith led them to experience a great miracle. Jesus wants you to have a faith that you can amaze over. So, what direction is God leading you in that you might be fearful of? 
Lose the faith. Lose the fear and live by faith. What healing do you have going on in your life? Is it a physical healing that you might seek God for? Is it an emotional healing? Is it spiritual healing? You're maybe not even in a relationship with Christ yet. Lose the fear and live by faith. What breakthrough do you need in your life right now? Whatever it is, lose the fear and live by faith. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.